I think plurality is one of the main ways that God can provide a delightful experience in ministry where we're not bearing these burdens alone and we're actually sharing the joy of being in ministry and applying the gospel together in a way that thrills us and grows us and then models something for the church. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and the Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Dave Harvey. Dave is the president of the Great Commission Collective, a church planting ministry, and he previously pastored for 33 years. He's the author of a number of books, including The Plurality Principle, How to Build and Maintain a Thriving Church Leadership Team from Crossway. Today, Dave and I discuss why plural leadership, a team of elders, is so crucial for the health of a local church. He explains why he thinks the term plurality is often affirmed, but then also often misunderstood and misapplied. He highlights the need for transparency, accountability, and group decision-making among a church's elder team. And he explains what he means when he says that the senior pastor should be considered the first among equals. Let's get started. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining me today on the Crossway Podcast. Matt, it's great to be with you. So Dave, you served as a pastor for over 30 years, uh, and you now lead a church planting organization. You've also written a number of books, uh, one of which is focused specifically on helping men discern whether or not they're truly called to uh, vocational pastoral ministry. Um, so I wonder, could you just summarize for us, how do you view your ministry right now? What's your focus these days, if you had to kind of boil it down to a couple sentences? I spent most of my life pastoring and uh, pastored the majority of that time up in Philadelphia and and then down in Florida for an additional seven years. And only two years ago did I step out of pastoral ministry in order to more singularly focus on leading a church planting network. I was just getting, I was just getting older. And to be honest, it's exhausting mm, yeah. doing the, uh, the, both the network and the local church pastoring ministry. So, um, I thought it would be more effective and probably more timely for me to just do that, which is, which is what I'm doing now. So I really, Matt, want to give the rest of my life to helping pastors and ministries last. And, and to do that by inspiring them with gospel truths that will help them to lead more effectively. And I hope to do that in the realm of church planting and helping to care for pastors along the way. So obviously the, the goal of helping churches and pastors last has a certain timelessness to it. That's always uh, an important thing that, that we would want people to be concerned about and helping pastors, supporting pastors in that. But do you feel like there's a certain timeliness to that kind of ambition today and in, in, in our moment in history? Do you feel like there's a, a real need for people to be focused on that particular thing? No question. I mean, I think it was a priority before, before Corona. And, and now that the pandemic has hit and guys are tanking all over the place, I think it's all the more urgent. I mean, I'm sitting and talking with a guy just recently, and he's telling me about a pastor in the area who just one, one day walked in after serving 10 years and left. 
He was just burnt out. He capsized. Um, It felt like he could no longer lead anymore. And I wish I could say that was the only example I can offer. But that's going on all over the place because it's just exhausting and ministry is not what men expected. And the complexities and decisions and the burdens that they're carrying is is happening in in isolation for many of them. And so the, the, the choice for them is to survive and survive often means stepping out of ministry. So I would love the idea of being able to help men like that. And I like to think that I'm doing that in my role right now as, as president of Great Commission Collective. Yeah. You said that many of these men, uh, ministry was not what they expected. It, it's just different in some important ways. So is there anything to that? Is there something about the, let's say, the seminary or Bible college preparation? And that's, that's kind of the main place that we tend to look to as the place where where men are going to be trained up and prepared for ministry, vocational ministry. So is there something about what they're being told and taught there that is that is not aligned with the reality of, of day-to-day ministry? Well, I think, you know, seminary and Bible school certainly has its place, but it, it tends to be theological education that where they often do the best they can to integrate it into the church, but they're limited by the institution in doing so. And, and so for guys to step out of school and into ministry and discover that it's dramatically different than they expected yeah. is, is almost the part of every man in ministry story. But, but uh, over the last year, that, that has just detonated. It has taken it so far beyond the normal realm of experience and, and put it in the realm of, of having to have a knowledge base on things that, and, and, and a degree of expertise on things that they never even studied or never imagined. And, and so, and, and then to, to also foist upon guys in ministry, a volume of decision-making each and every week that, uh, you know, that ministry doesn't often demand. So I think those things have made the last year more unique. And yes, there's there's nothing, there's no way that a, a seminary or a Bible school could prepare guys for that. Yeah. Well, you kind of already hit on this a little bit, uh, but that's where in, a, in an unprecedented pandemic, a crisis like coronavirus, um, having a team of leaders who are helping to make those decisions, helping to to lead in the unique and challenging ways that, that pastors have been called to lead in, in this this crazy season that we're in is obviously so important. But I, I think you could probably, uh, in, to a lesser extent, there's all kinds of mini crises that churches might face or difficult situations that churches and pastors will face over their lifetime of ministry, where a team would be a big help uh, to the pastor, uh, making sure it doesn't all fall on his shoulders. Uh, and in your new book, you write... Quote, a plurality of leadership is like the alternator for the church. Most of the time, it's operating out of sight, and most people don't even know how it works. When it functions as designed, the church remains charged and moving forward. But where the functional plurality of a leadership team is absent, churches stall. So there's obviously a lot to unpack there, uh, but I want to start at the beginning. When you say a plurality of leadership, when you use that phrase, what do you mean by that? Because I imagine that different people might take that a different way. Sure. So plurality describes, as I'm using it, describes the overwhelming 
New Testament evidence that local church leadership was not singular, that local church leadership was shared, and that it was most often shared by elders, although I think you could make a case that deacons is included as well. And, and we, we come at that, we arrive there because the New Testament terms for pastor, overseer, elders are almost never used to talk about a single leader who is ruling or governing the church alone. Instead, they're used to reference plural leadership. And so there's a number of examples uh, beginning in Acts and all the way throughout the, the New Testament where it's elders, plural, overseers, plural. Um, and, and so theologians, commentators have, have throughout history inferred from that that New Testament leadership among elders was was a shared task, and that that was intentional by God as the way, the best way for church leadership to happen, and the best way for churches to thrive. Hmm. So there's a nuance to one of the phrases in that quote that I wanted to dig into a bit, though. You, you say, uh, "quote where the functional plurality of leadership uh, of the leadership team is absent, churches stall." So why was it important to you to include that word functional? and not just say, you know, where the plurality of leadership is absent, churches stall. Because the, the term plurality is, is often used but not understood, and that, they're, that leaders gain currency by using the term plurality yeah. and don't often fill that out and necessarily function within it. And so I use the word functional plurality because I think it's a lot more than simply saying, hey, there's a there's a group of guys here who are elders. See, plurality means that the, the authority for the church inheres not in a single guy, but in, in, in a group, and that the church is therefore led with a team and through a team. And uh, that in a, in a very real sense, Scripture assumes that the team is better than one man. The team, team wisdom is better than one man's genius. So I, I think that, that it's really something that becomes not simply a, a polity distinctive, but it becomes one of the primary ways to lead the church and one of the primary ways to lead the church into health. And so the fundamental theme of the book that I've written is that the quality of your plurality determines the health of your church. And, um, you know, so, so let me just, let me just illustrate it this way. You know, I think, I think plurality is often viewed as a, as like a job task, alongside a wide array of other tasks that, that maybe a senior pastor uh, has to tend to, or if the guys are are elders, they're saying, hey, yeah, guys, we need to do this together, and they kind of affirm that and then move on their way. But it's, it's better to see plurality as the doorway to effective ministry. So, um, you know, growing up in Pittsburgh, my, my grandfather was a carpenter in a steel mill, and he had this saw that he took meticulous care of. And and my grandfather was known for doing great work, but he would say that his great work was because he had these few well-maintained tools. Yeah, and, yeah. And so plurality is one of those primary tools that you use to get healthy churches. It needs to be prioritized. It needs to be tended and looked after and well-maintained. And through it, 
we, we do our best work. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, so then let's get into the biblical support for that. You've kind of already given us a little bit of a taste that there's this uh, sort of visible pattern of plurality that we seem to see in the New Testament. Uh, but, it, you know, you're emphasizing this as being not just kind of one way to do ministry, one way to lead a church, but that this is, as you said, kind of crucial for the health of a church. So what would you say to somebody who hears that, but they're kind of saying, well, but Scripture doesn't come out and teach that very clearly. We have to kind of infer this pattern, but does that mean that it's necessary, that it's required for all churches? What, what would be your response to that? Well, I would say that, it, you know, I used the word earlier, infer, uh, perhaps a better word to use is explicit, because I think when you go through the catalog of passages where elders are referenced and that they're all plural, then that's more explicit. So, you know, Acts 14, elders, plural, are appointed to every church. Uh, Acts 20, overseers, plural, shepherd the flock in Ephesus. Um, Paul writes to the Philippians, uh, elders, plural, the overseers, plural, again. So ag again and again, we can walk through New Testament epistles and letters and see that it's always plural. And so in the mind of the, of, of, of the Holy Spirit and in the mind of the writers of the letters, you know, they, they were writing to a group of people assuming that, that the authority and the message needed to go to the whole group because the authority resided in the whole group and the leadership for the church rested in the hands of the full group. So I, I think it is more explicit and not simply inferred. And I think it's, it's, it's vital regardless of whether you're Presbyterian, Congregational, Episcopalian, you know, regardless of where you where you hail from and what your tradition is, it all kind of moves back into the local church and how the local church is going to be led. And while I think we can make a case from, from Scripture for the existence of a senior pastor, there's a stronger case to be made for a plurality. So the plurality is the starting point. And then I think if there's a, if there's a senior guy, he derives his existence and his authorization to lead from that plurality. That's so interesting. So yeah, you would you would say that if we were going to emphasize one thing from scripture, it's plurality of elders, not a senior pastor. That is that is less supported in scripture if you kind of had to compare the two to each other. Yeah, I think there's a, there's certainly a pattern of leadership um, and a pattern of wisdom where God uses one to influence many. That if we were going to do a biblical theology beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation, we, we could see that. But there, there also is, you know, in Israel and then in the New Testament church, there is this first among equals that seems to exist. And that that principle continues to remain in the in the New Testament church. And so I think we have a, a, a place to be able to appoint a senior pastor. I think there's good reason to, but we never want to elevate the senior pastor above the plurality. And uh, and the plurality, the, the senior pastor in some ways exists to ensure the plurality is functioning well and doing what the plurality must do in order for the church to experience health. Yeah. Yeah, I want to return to that idea of uh, the first among equals and just even the practical reality of how a uh, a plurality actually functions together. Um, but before we do that, 
Uh, you've kind of already hit on some of this, but what would you say are some of the key benefits to a local church? That could be to the congregation, to the staff, pastors, to the elders. What are the key benefits of true plurality? Yeah, great question. Um, and this is in it, not necessarily in the order of importance, but I think there are more obvious benefits, like the fact that it it spreads the workload among other elders and workers. It 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 spreads the burden for the overall governance of the church to other workers. Um, it allows us to to fill roles according to our gifts as well. So we were talking about a senior pastor. So, you know, a senior pastor can be appointed, gifts can be identified and and uh, strategically deployed according to the way God has graced a person. Um, I think another benefit is that it, it creates a model to apply truth that will then be exported to the church out of the reality of what that group is experiencing. So it's good It's good to think about the eldership as a microcosm of the church huh. so that we are experiencing together what we want the church to experience. And we are leading together in the things that we want to lead the church in. And uh, we're modeling that for the church. And if it doesn't work here, then it might be hard to take it to the church with any degree of, of credibility. Well, and we've all, I'm sure many of us have experienced in a small group context where when the quote-unquote leader of the group is willing to be transparent and share something that they're struggling with and ask for prayer, or ask for help, uh, that is it has a, a disproportionately powerful impact on the rest of the group in kind of encouraging people to do likewise. It does, yeah. It it For the plurality, it has a deep impact when they see either the senior pastor do that or a statured elder do that. And then in the church, it has the same effect when people in the church see the elders do that. And that's why, you know, building it among the plurality becomes so important. Uh, well, you see, Matt, I, I think that it one of the things about plurality is that it, it requires real humility for plurality to work. So, so you know, if if the plurality of leader is is the engine that drives the church, then then humility is kind of like the the oil that lubricates the engine, and I think that's intentional. I mean, I, I've told people before when I've taught on this. My my theory is that that God loves humility. That's why He came up with plurality because plurality doesn't work without humility, yeah, and that for yeah. you to have a healthy plurality, you have to have passed through humility and imbibed humility and implied humility, because it because plurality imposes um, process. It imposes communication. It, it, it requires patience on the task of governing and that's intentional because God is not just sitting up there measuring the leadership of the church by the ends. He's up there measuring us by both ends and means. And, and so it's, it's, it's for lead, church leaders, it's never just about what we achieve. It's also about how we achieve it. 
That, that's that's good because my my guess is that some people that might be one of the initial kinds of negative responses to this idea that a pastor might have, namely. Yeah, to to do this, it feels so inefficient. It feels like it's so cumbersome to to kind of make these team decisions. Uh, I'm I'm so much more effective if I can just kind of make the call and then start acting on that. But you're kind of saying maybe even some of that is intentional uh, by God. He wants it to be. Uh, uh, he has a purpose for that inefficiency. I I believe that yeah uh, <clears throat> it's not inefficiency in the mind of God it's inefficiency in from a human standard uh, because we measure things differently than God does and and God is as jealous for what He's doing in us as for what is happening through us and we tend to be excessively focused on what what is happening through us um, and I just think God values patience more than than we do i you know you just saw me i was looking at my bookshelf to see the the name of this book that i read like last year it was called i think it was called the patient ferment of the early church and and basically it was a it was a book that was advocating how in the first three centuries patience was the primary virtue that the church sought to measure success by. So in the way that we would elevate humility today, patience was the primary virtue because they just saw that as a primary theme in scripture. And so that's what they tried to, among other things, but that's what they tried to reproduce in leaders in the church because that, so we don't, we don't even use that as a category or it's not nearly yeah. talked about as much. <laughs> right. And yet I think it's a pretty profound uh, message in scripture. Huh, that's so fascinating. Uh, so in your extensive experience talking with pastors and church leaders over the years, uh, advising them, counseling them, writing books for them, how common would you say is a truly functional plurality of leadership, you know, let's say in American evangelicalism? Well, I, I wrote the book because I, I felt like this was a weakness, um, I, I know that just in my own life, in the times where it's been success, where we've had an effective plurality, it's required an enormous amount of work and attention. And I, uh, I have a burden to see that because I think it's even more important in these pandemic and post-pandemic days that we're living in um, as we're trying to make sense of the tumbles of, of different celebrity pastors and and we're just trying to find our way forward in a way where we don't feel so isolated. I think plurality is one of the main ways that God can provide a delightful experience in ministry where we're not bearing these burdens alone and we're actually sharing the joy of being in ministry and applying the gospel together in a way that thrills us and grows us and then models something for the church. So I, I think it's a it, there's a great opportunity for the message of plurality right now. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm eager to see the, the people have a chance to read the book and, and process the information. Yeah, yeah. So then in your experience talking with pastors and leaders, uh, for those who aren't convinced, or, or at least weren't convinced that this is as important as you're making it out to be, what are some of the most common objections to uh, the plural leadership that you're promoting here that you hear from skeptical pastors and leaders? Well, you touched on one already. It's inefficient. That's, you know, there's a way of looking at it where 
you know, there's all of a sudden more conversation, um, the, un the, the belief that there's going to be more meetings and, um, and uh, uh, an understanding that leadership should be able to move quickly. And I do believe there are times where, you know, where responsibility needs to be centralized and particularly in crisis where leaders have to be able to move quickly. But in general, there's a belief that it's just inefficient. And uh, and we talked about how God imposes that uh, because it calls forth humility. It calls forth patience. I, I think that another common objection is that it it diminishes the importance of gifted leaders by just leveling the playing field. So it kind of eliminates the importance of the leadership gift. And that's where, you know, in the book, I was trying to be very diligent to protect the role of a senior leader of a first among equals who is authorized by the plurality to help the plurality and to position the elders in keeping with their best roles. So, you know, a, a wise elder board understands that that creativity, innovation, leadership gifts, they've got to be supported and protected in order for the church to flourish. And uh, and so, uh, you know, I think that that it's you've got to pair those things together. But I do think that's one of the, the common ob objections. And. It just another thing, Matt, is just, it costs it costs a lot. And I don't mean financially. You know, I, I just think that there's a commitment that you make. And and yet the commitment that you make is also it's part of my selling point. It's part of the the, the incredible experience and the opportunity. Huh. Because we all we all cherish these memories that we have of accomplishing something, not just by ourselves, but with a group of people that made us better. You know, whether it's the big game or 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 fixing some problem that we never expected to be able to get through or or I remember us building a building in a, in a church I was in up in Philadelphia and the experience of, of feeling alive because you accomplished something, not just as an individual, but you did it together. And, and, and you realize those were moments of flourishing. Those were moments where, where you were the best that, that, that you were on earth and, and that God was good and, and his, his graciousness and goodness was tangible and palpable. And, and you want that for people, but that only comes by committing to, you know, to this idea and seeing the importance of it in the local church. Hmm. So, so then let's dig into the idea of the senior pastor, something, a concept that you're not throwing out, you're not saying is unimportant and has no place, but you use this phrase a few times, first among equals. So unpack that a little bit. What does that look like? And maybe let's just jump right to the, the, the key moment that probably everyone's thinking of. What, what does that look like played out when there's a disagreement on the elder team? And let's say the senior pastor feels like we should do one thing, and some or all the elders, the lay elders, are saying, no, we don't know if that's a good idea. What, what happens then? Well, I think there has to be conversation. There has to be communication. There has to be a, a culture where disagreement and dissent is, is a part of the culture. And, and then there has to be a willingness to subordinate oneself to 
whether it's the senior pastor or whether it's one of the elders subordinate themselves to what may be over time the wisdom of the group. I mean, one of the examples I use in the book is is about how when uh, Bethlehem Baptist Church arrived at their their position on uh, divorce and remarriage, that John Piper, the man leading the church, did not agree with the position that the church was adopting, but that the elders felt like it was, in the wisdom of God, the best thing for, for their church. And so John Piper had to walk the church through a position that he didn't agree with because the elders felt like it was the best thing. And then the elders wisely afforded John the opportunity to share why he dissented from it. And, and so John Piper still saw it as his responsibility to provide the leadership, his responsibility to dissent wisely, his responsibility to unify around elders with whom he disagreed, but, but trusted God, didn't just resign and walk away, have taken his ball, but resigned himself that God is speaking. And then, but was allowed to also exercise his conscience and even give voice to it among the people. That's that's healthy plurality there at, at work. And there's a lot of different values that are on display just in that one illustration. Yeah. Well, and speak maybe to your own experience. You were a pastor, as we said, for over 30 years. And I'm sure there were situations where you, as a, a staff pastor, were not in full agreement with some of your elders or all of your elders. And so just speak from, from that side of the table. What was that like? Did you ever struggle with feeling uh, threatened, perhaps, even by that dynamic and, and struggle to kind of uh, model even some of the humility that you've been describing today? What was that like for you? Oh, I've definitely had difficulty modeling the humility. <laughs> um, yes, I, I think that, you know, every, every senior pastor— um, has a has a a burden and a responsibility to to work hard to create a culture where the elders are heard because there is almost an inherent deference to the senior pastor uh, and particularly if there are lay elders there, then, you know, they're going they're even a step removed sometimes and will be more apt to just defer to the person who they've hired and who seems to display gifts and competence to just let him run with it. And so the senior pastor has to be determined to coax out of the elders their opinions and perspective, and elders have to feel duty-bound to share that so that then they can either agree or they can move forward at least having heard all perspectives. So I think that early on, my uh, my vision for leadership was over leadership, and I felt like you know that I had more of a mandate from God to be able to lead and guide, and and the plurality did not mean as much. And I, I even talk about in the book some of the mistakes and failures that I I made in that period, and it was through those mistakes and failures that I think the that I began to realize that you know you know leading with with a 
a group of men and having other elders around me was going to be far more significant than I ever imagined. I never imagined that this was going to be a primary locus for my sanctification. I, I knew marriage was going to be, I, I knew parenting was going to be, but I didn't realize that eldership and plurality was going to be so essential. And I began to realize that that I need to give my time and attention to developing this plurality so that it operates not only on behalf of the church and not only for each of the members of the plurality, but, but for my own godliness and durability in ministry. Mm. Yeah, it makes me think of something I, I've read that Mark Dever, uh, pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., uh, he has observed that same kind of dynamic and has written a few articles, I think, about the intentionality with which he's had to approach things like elder meetings, trying to withhold even his own opinion at times to make sure that uh, everyone else feels a freedom to to share what they're thinking. I think when there's a weak plurality, Matt, I, I think one of the dangers that's good to talk about in this day and age is that there's often like an unmapped power at work in the church. And, you know, there's always power that's that's being exercised somewhere uh, in, a, in a church environment. It's really wise for us to know exactly where it is and to know how it's working and how the influence is taking place. I think good plurality allows us to map power and to, to be able to identify where it's supposed to come from and and to legitimize the you know those sources and delegitimize other sources where necessary, because I think I think some of the abuse that takes place in the church today is because of that unmapped power and it's not it's not understood. Yeah, it might not by unmapped. Are you kind of getting at the fact that it might not be formally listed on the church website, so to speak, but it is operational in a functional way? Exactly. Yes. Well, maybe if, as a last question, you could speak to the three types of people that I imagine could be listening right now. The first, speak to the, the pastor listening, the, the vocational pastor, who would have to say he's just not convinced that a lack of plural leadership uh, that you've, like you've described is something that his church really needs. Maybe he's, he's thinking to himself, we've been operating without the kind of leadership team that you're describing for years, maybe even decades and things are going fine. I'm preaching from the Bible. People are being discipled. People are coming to Christ. The church is even growing. Uh, in short, I think my church is actually pretty healthy, and we're doing okay. What would you say to that? Well, I would, I th I would thank God for the fruit that I'm hearing from the church, and I, I think that there is a, there is a grace that exists where people are, you know, don't have... Uh, the, the full information or aren't walking in all of the light. Um, and I, I don't despise that and, or feel like, you know, something wrong is going on there. So I just thank God that, that there, there's fruit. Um, I, I do think that we need to arrive at our convictions on plurality, not simply because they're pragmatic, but because they're biblical and that there is a, there is a beauty and a testimony that rings forth from team ministry that does not ring forth from the singular gifted guy and um, and that it ultimately has a better impact and a deeper impact on the church for, uh, for you know for the good of the church and and for the thriving of the church. So you know I, I wrote the book to be a part of that process. Uh, 
to give guys like that something to discuss. You know, we're working on a, a study guide and some, some some additional tools right now as well. So I, I would just say, you know, start with studying scripture and see if your convictions, uh, see how that cross-examines your convictions and where that leaves you. Uh, but also study some models where it is happening and ask questions about why why people chose to go in that direction and what might be missing from your experience in ministry. Because honestly, Matt, I, I don't think there are many men out there in ministry that are saying, hey, I, I, I went, I'm going it alone, and man, is it a blessing. Mm, yeah. I, I think the majority of them that are going it alone long for this plurality that we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So then what would you say to the pastor who is maybe in that, that group? He's, he's convinced by what you've said. Uh, he has studied the issue to some extent and knows or senses that maybe things need to change, whether that's uh, formally or even just functionally, but he doesn't really know where to start. What, what should he do as a next step? Well, I think it helps to, to have a conversation with the other elders and, and talk about um, what he feels he sees, what he, what he feels like is lacking in his own life, just to honestly share his heart and what his vision is for a team of people that are caring for one another, loving one another, and, and that mission is happening in the church more effectively as a result of that. You know, one of the things um, in, I think it's chapter seven, um, there's a chapter in the book called The Plurality Tune-Up, and it's, it's, it's dedicated as an assessment tool that will invite elderships to evaluate themselves and their their plurality. Yeah. So under four different categories. So a guy like that could could take chapter seven and say, hey, let's go through this. There's there's questions that are provided here. Let's just talk about these questions. Maybe do that on a retreat or an all day all day meeting together. Yeah. Yeah. All right. As a last category, speak to the lay elder who is part of a church leadership team that, again, formally perhaps uh, exists to lead the church, but functionally he would say that he doesn't really think that's happening, that the, that the senior pastor or maybe any of the staff pastors uh, exert such a dominant control, maybe have such a strong personality even, that it really doesn't function as a team. What should he do? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I want to lay out or to hear is is how grateful I am for their vision to serve the church and the sacrifices that they make to do so, which I think is a different set of sacrifices than somebody who is called into pastoral ministry and is and is an elder. Um, and I do think yes. So you know, let's just acknowledge that the experience of a lay elder is different. And that a good plurality and a and a good senior pastor is going to try to narrow the gap as much as possible. But there are things that happen in the office and the way things move forward that they're just not a part of. And so I think it's good for them to recognize that. And it's good to we have to ensure that the plurality, that the paid plurality and the senior pastor recognize that and that they're always working to, you know, try to try to narrow that gap. I, I think that apart from, I would put that under the category then of understanding. So understanding that there is a distinction, you can work to minimize it, but it's always going to be there. And it seems like something that that sovereignty and providence has has fixed. Um, and, and then secondly, I think that it, 
you know, it, it's often, it's amazing how often things come back to communication. Yeah. <laughs> but to be honestly sitting and talking about how you're experiencing, you know, this eldership and to be able to sit and say, these are the ways that I feel like God is at work in us and through us. And these are the things that I feel like is missing that I, I personally long for. And I don't feel like is a, is a uh, unreasonable expectation in light of the fact that I'm not that, that I'm a lay elder. I recognize there's going to be difference, but this still seems like a, a reasonable expectation. And uh, and to have those conversations and invite interaction over that, I, I think it just closes the gap uh, by being able to talk about them and and being able to define what is a reasonable expectation and, and what might not be possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, Dave, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and I think provide pastors and church leaders, elders, and even lay people who might be listening with uh, some some biblical insights into this very important issue of what it means to lead Christ's church. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Matt. I'm, I'm grateful to have been invited. That was Dave Harvey on the importance of plural leadership in a local church. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Plurality Principle, How to Build and Maintain a Thriving Church Leadership Team, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.